Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Dalhais and Dr. Daniel Kahneman. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Hi, welcome to episode 49. Episode 49, and we're going to do something special for episode 50, a half century. Oh yeah, goodness, that <laughs> happened fast. <laughs> yeah, and, and now we've put pressure on ourselves to do something special. <laughs> oh no, oh no, <laughs> we should have planned that. this. <laughs> we also have something special for you this week. Today we will be talking to Dr. Elizabeth Nalumenza about her work with the SALT telescope and a particular spectrograph and a particular mode on that spectrograph called the Fabry-Perot interferometry mode. So we will explain everything about what that is and as will uh, Liz. But this is this particular episode is to celebrate something special, right, Dad? Yeah, the International Astronomical Union is running a Women in Astronomy Month. Is it a month? I think it's not quite a month. It's between the 11th of February, which is the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, and the 8th of March, which is the International Women's Day. Yeah, and basically that'll be focusing on celebrating women in astronomy and in science. Yeah, Women and Girls in Astronomy, and that's run by the IAU, so the International Astronomical Union's Office for Astronomy Outreach. So that's OAO. Office of Astronomy Outreach. Yeah, so and as part of that, we, uh, or you, spoke to Liz. Yeah, so I spoke to Liz as part of this uh, Women and Girls in Astronomy project. It's kind of an international thing where there's loads of different events and initiatives involved with this idea all over the world. And you can go onto the website and we'll put a link on our show notes page where you can go and find out about all of the activities going on in hopefully there'll be something wherever you are, but there's a lot of virtual events going on that you can join in. For kids, there's a uh, Draw an Astronomer competition and, yeah, lots of other things. There's a YouTube channel where you can go and see videos from women in astronomy and um, uh, lots of stuff on social media. So check that out. And our podcast, hopefully. Yeah, and this podcast, hopefully, we must remember to register it officially. This episode will come out during that time. Yeah, so that hopefully we can be part of it and be on their, on their calendar. And speaking of uh, women in astronomy, of which you are one of, you have some news? Yes. So this week, or last week rather, from the 1st of February, I have started a new position. I'm now a lecturer of astronomy at the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department. So I will be teaching third year extragalactic astrophysics. So if you are currently studying astronomy and you're going into third year or you will be going into third year, I will probably be your lecturer. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, but um, yeah, so I've only lectured twice before. Uh, so I have, don't have a lot of experience, but I'm a junior lecturer and it's an opportunity to get more experience. And I found that I really enjoy it. The students are really great. So yeah, looking forward to sharing my expertise with the next generation. And you obviously have plenty of experience in communicating science, so I'm sure it'll come naturally. 
Oh, well, thank you. Hopefully it, it does. But, you know, my course is in is just in one semester and for the rest of the time I'm continuing my research as normal. So I'll still be continuing my work into galaxy evolution, trying to study how galaxies change and evolve over the history of the universe, how the black holes inside, supermassive black holes inside galaxies are kind of churning up the gas, heating it up, blowing it out, how much gas there is, how much stars they're forming, all of this kind of stuff. So, yeah continue on with my research. And some point we'll have to have you back on the podcast as a guest. <laughs> yes, maybe when the next paper comes out. <laughs> People will start thinking we're biased. We are. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, <laughs> okay that's enough about me. <laughs> what have you been up to, Dan? We spoke about Atlas in the last episode with Nick and the, you know, the telescope was just launched. Uh, we had dignitaries there, the Parliamentary Portfolio Committee up there, and very exciting uh, international release. NASA put out a release, the, the uh, University of Hawaii put out a release, and that triggered a huge amount of media interest. So I did a lot of radio interviews. There was a lot of media. I'm actually recording a, a TV interview this afternoon. So that's that's taken up a lot of my last week, but very exciting. And And even since we spoke to Nick, and since the press release came out, Atlas has found another asteroid, near-Earth asteroid, which passed uh, just two lunar distances from Earth. So that's getting quite close. But it was only 20 meters across, so less concerning. And then it's also discovered, I think, at last count, over 60 other transients. So, you know, Atlas is looking at the night sky every night for anything that moves or changes. And... Therefore, it actually finds other things other than just asteroids. It finds supernova and anything that changes in brightness or position over time. And supernova definitely change in brightness quite rapidly. So it's detecting these other objects too and then passing them on to specialist telescopes who can follow them up. So it's been a very, very busy telescope and operating perfectly. 60 transients. Gosh, that's remarkable. Yes. Well, I mean, I think that as more and more of these telescopes are coming online, we're just going to get more and more and more of, of such objects. And Atlas isn't even particularly deep looking. So it's looking at a large patch of the sky relatively deeply. But once you get even bigger telescopes doing these sort of nightly surveys, I think we're going to be completely inundated with transients. Yeah, the Vera Rubin Observatory with the LSST survey that we keep mentioning. That'll be, <laughs> yeah, next level. <laughs> Legacy survey of space and time. Very good. Yes. I think that's right. Oh, no. We'll Google it and correct ourselves at the end again. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one to remember. Probably our listeners will know it by now, even if we keep forgetting. <laughs> but uh, back to today's episode, uh, you spoke to Liz. Yes. Who is something of a pioneer in women in astronomy. Yes. So, so Liz is from Uganda and she is, as far as we know, the first Ugandan woman to get a PhD in astronomy. And if you also remember episode 10, we spoke to Priscilla Muhechi. Um, she's now finished her PhD and she becomes the first woman to get a PhD in astronomy from a Ugandan institute. So Liz became the first woman, and but she got her PhD from South Africa. Um, and Priscilla has just graduated from Uganda. So that's really exciting. Um, congratulations to both of those women and hopefully the first of many. Absolutely. Yeah. And Liz is working in Cape Town now. She works with your institute, Dan, at the SAAO, the <laughs> South African Astronomical Observatory, with the SALT telescope, which is the Southern African Large Telescope 
biggest optical telescope in the southern hemisphere and it has several different kind of instruments on it so the light is bounces off the primary mirror and ultimately gets collected into these different instruments whichever one the observer wants to use and some of those instruments are spectrographs so Liz and I try and explain kind of what a spectrum is but maybe we should go through it beforehand Dan. Yeah so I think that the thing to remember about telescopes is the telescope itself as as we would picture it or, or think of it is essentially a light bucket so it's a, a big mirror in most cases which is collecting as many photons as it can the bigger it is the bigger its aperture the more photons it can collect which means the more faint the object that it can identify and and observe but collecting the light obviously is just the first step then you need to do something with it the obvious thing is to focus it and then you can take an image or something but there's a lot more you can do with that light. The photons which have traveled across the universe have an incredible amount of information in them. You know, they have color, so they have different wavelengths, they have polarization, they have all sorts of things which have been embedded into their characteristics, which given the correct instruments, we can weed out of them and, and try and learn about where they came from and what environment they came from, what object they came from. And SALT obviously has different instruments with different specialities to try and, and work out where these photons are coming from. And, you know, uh, what you can work out how fast they're moving, how far away they are, all sorts of things like that, just by looking at the light in much more detail. Yeah, exactly. So then, as you said, you know, the light bucket, which is the SALT telescope, the mirror, collects the light and we have to decide what to do with the light once we've got it. And one thing we can do is to split the light up into its different wavelengths or its different colours. If it's in the optical, we can see different wavelengths as different colours uh, with our eyes. But the spectrographs do this so that it splits it up into very tiny wavelength ranges or colour ranges. So you can think of it sort of like splitting it up into light blue, then teal, then aqua, then dark blue, then navy, kind of like that, but in really small increments, <laughs> sort of like that. I just chose my favorite color, oh, which is blue. Yeah, I mean, but like teal, teal and aqua, are those colors? That's not what I learned at school. No, I mean, you know, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> you, get, you get the point. As far as I'm concerned, there's seven colors. <laughs> Do you mean six? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. The colours of the rainbow. But indigo's not a real colour. Indigo's not a real colour. No, don't you know the story? Isaac Newton was apparently quite religious and six was a like the devil's number or something or seven is a good number, I can't remember. And so he added an extra colour in. I did not know that. I'm going to Google. Who invented the colours of the rainbow? Who invented the colours of the rainbow? Oh, it Science was did. Isaac Newton. I was right. <laughs> 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 Indigo's oh, right. not well, a I didn't, thing. I didn't know that. Okay, well, You're tell that to my daughter who, who has two different purple crowns. <laughs> I mean, but there's many different wavelengths and it's a continuum, right? So yes. anyway, the point of splitting up your light into these different little segments, I guess, is to... You can study a couple of different things. One thing is you can see the emission line from particular elements or chemicals or molecules in space. So it's a way of kind of studying the, the chemical composition of whatever you're looking at. So, for example, you might be able to detect oxygen in the atmosphere of an exoplanet. I mean, I'm, you know, 
wishful thinking here, but... For example. (laughs) (laughs) For example, you might be able to detect hydrogen or nitrogen or all of these different chemicals, carbon in stars, in the atmospheres of stars or in the interstellar gas of galaxies. So it gives you more information about whatever it is that you're looking at. And it can also give you information on how fast that chemical, that molecule, that atom is moving. So distances are really hard to figure out in space, but uh, velocities are not so hard. So it actually really helps you to, you can look at the spectral line of the molecule or the atom or the chemical that you're interested in, and you know what wavelength you're supposed to be seeing that light at. And if you see it at a wavelength that's slightly longer or slightly shorter than what you expect, then that's telling you that that gas or that atom or whatever it is, is either moving towards you or away from you in space. And then this is how you can understand the movement or the velocity of the gas or the chemical. And then you you can tell perhaps that you have a galaxy that's rotating in a certain direction. You have maybe some gas that's been blown off the outer layers of a star in a certain direction. So you can get a lot of different information from these spectra. Yeah, for sure. I mean, photons have embedded in them like the entire story of their their past, you know, where they started, where they've been. And it's our our little challenge and hobby (laughs) job to work all that out and solve that mystery. To reconstruct the past almost. Exactly. Isn't it fun? Aww, that's so nice. We're historians. Who knew? I love the whole idea of the photon. You look at an individual photon and in it is like, obviously... There's a sad end in that it ended either in your instrument or in your eye, but it could have been traveling for 13 billion years and it's traveled through different, you know, gravity wells and clouds of gas and everything else and, and all the while picked up information, which then comes and lands in our, in our instrument somewhere in Sutherland and then dies. You should be a poet. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, getting back on track. Yes. So... SALT has various spectrographs. One of them is the RSS, right? Yes, the Robert Stobie uh, spectrograph. Okay, so it's called the RSS spectrograph. And there are different modes that you can use this in, as Liz will tell us. And one of these is called the Fabry-Perot mode. This particular mode has been offline for a while, so observers haven't been able to use it, but now it's being kind of recommissioned thanks to the team that uh, Liz works as part of. And Liz's particular role within this is to write some software to calibrate the Fabry-Perot mode so that it's working properly and also to write the software that helps the observers use the data that's coming from this particular mode. So very advanced stuff, very impressive stuff. And perhaps we should let Liz explain the rest. Oh, we wanted to also talk about what NASP is, right? Liz is one of the the graduates of, of the NASP program. I actually went through the NASP program myself too. And the NASP program is the National Astrophysics and Space Science Program which is run here in South Africa. And it was established, I think, 20, 25 years ago now, initially with its its node in Cape Town, at the University of Cape Town. But now it has two additional nodes where students can study uh, in Potchefstroom, in the center of the country, near Joburg, and in KZN, in KwaZulu-Natal, near Durban. So the idea with the NASP program is that there are honors and masters 
courses where students can come from around South Africa and Africa and they can get exposure to a wide number of subject matter, things related to space science and astronomy. They get lectures on them and then from that they can choose their master's project and PhD projects. So it's a it's a way of bringing together the community of astronomy into into a few places where we can get the, the best astronomers and, and the best lecturers all in one place rather than trying to spread it out over all of the, the universities in the country. And then, as I said, it serves uh, the rest of Africa too. So we've had a lot of students over the last uh, 20 years coming from other African countries, of which Liz is one of them. And, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see another graduate succeeding and just a, an, an excellent program NASP has been. I'm not sure what the last count in terms of the number of PhD astronomers that have come out of NASP, but it's, it's a lot. Yeah, so definitely a lot of people sing its praises, uh, particularly all of its graduates. It's an amazing program. And as we said, Liz is one of the graduates from the NASP program. Let's hear what she has to say. With us now is Dr. Elizabeth Naluminza from the South African Astronomical Observatory. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. Thank you, Jacinta. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and what got you into astronomy? Well, as I said, I'm Elizabeth Naluminza. I come from Uganda. I'm an astronomer. I like to say that I'm a Ugandan and an astronomer. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I came from Uganda in 2010 to 2020-11, actually, to pursue further studies. But before that, I, I had done a Bachelor of Science at Mbara University of Science and Technology, majoring in physics. And I developed, I had developed interest in astronomy way before that, during my high school years. So what got me interested, I think specifically was the moon story, you know, Apollo landing. Yeah. <laughs> I read about it as a kid from textbooks and I thought that was really cool that there was stuff out there that was real, you know. It wasn't just out there and unreachable. So that got me quite interested. So when I finished high school, unfortunately, there was no course for astronomy in Uganda. But I was so lucky that when I went to university, the, the Department of Physics had started incorporating bits of astronomy in the curriculum. So we'll do a unit here and a unit there about astronomy. And it was really good. So I picked interest and then I applied to join the National Astrophysics and Space Science Program in South Africa, for which uh, I was recommended uh, by the, the department. And it turned out really good. I was so grateful to receive that kind of mentorship and support from my department back home. And then when I came to South Africa, I did my honours degree, master's and PhD in astronomy. And here we are. <laughs> wow, what a journey. Yeah. <laughs> so what university did you do your honours and master's and PhD at? I did that at University of Cape Town in South Africa. And how was that experience? That must have been quite a big change to come from Uganda to Cape Town and you know, a different country and study something completely different? It was quite interesting. There was a massive culture shock <laughs> <laughs> to begin with. And also the, the education system was quite different. 
But I think I caught up soon enough because there were other Ugandans that had done the program before, as well as other Ugandans and East Africans in the university. And I think I like meeting new people, so I guess it was fun altogether. <laughs> it was fun altogether. I'm glad you enjoyed the experience and that you persevered. So is there a large astronomy scene in Uganda? And I, I actually heard that you were the first or one of the first women to graduate with a PhD in astronomy from Uganda. Is that true? I don't know, because I haven't run a study in the entire world to find out what <laughs> Ugandan women are doing everywhere in the world. <laughs> Fair enough, uh, fair enough. But <laughs> astronomy is a relatively new field of study in Uganda, but the efforts to develop it have been ongoing for about 10 years or more. And I think they were begun by mainly two or three people, Professor Anguma in Muni University in Uganda, Professor Jurua in Bara University, and Professor Dujanga in Makere University. So especially for for me, the influences I had were Professor Anguma and Professor Jura. Uh, back then, there was effort to introduce it into the curriculum, at least at university, as part of physics. And a course that was dedicated to astronomy was not yet there, but they introduced elements of astronomy into the physics curriculum, um, introduction to astro astrophysics, you know. And then there would be general public talks where we would interact with the information that we find. Mostly the, the source of information for us was the internet back then, because as I said, it wasn't a major part of the curriculum. There were no textbooks yet that the government had provided for the curriculum and what. Uh, but right now, there are efforts paying off. So I do not know how many women that are Ugandan that are out there that are astronomers. I'm still looking for them like it's an active <laughs> search, literally. <laughs> yeah. I want to find a community. <laughs> to find them <laughs> wherever they're hiding. But I did get my PhD in 2019, uh, so glad. And recently was joined by Dr. Muhechi, uh, who, who actually was the first to get hers from a Ugandan university. Not like just a PhD, a PhD in astronomy. <laughs> yeah, a PhD in astronomy um, from a Ugandan university, right? From Ugandan university. Yeah. So yeah, there's a growing community now. Like for example, there's a community that is growing at, at different universities. At Busitama University, there's a community that is being developed by Dr. Amabayo, who is the head of the physics department there. There's an astronomy community being developed at Chambogo University, also in Uganda, by Dr. Abedigamba, who is also an astronomer, and Dr. Nsamba, who is also an astronomer. Then there's the community that is still being developed by, by Professor Jura, which includes Dr. Mutabazi, who is also an astronomer, who many of these people, if not most, they came from the NASP, their products of the NASP. So there is a community that is growing and the government is also picking interest in this with its connections to telecommunications and cutting edge technology. So I'm of the view that it's, it's a growing community and soon it will be even more and more vibrant with the government getting involved. And the IAU has always been supportive of astronomy in Uganda. It's, it's, it's been a very good relationship we've had with the IAU. Oh, that's fantastic. So that's the International Astronomical Union. Yeah, there's an organization back home, a private organization that is driving space technology, and it's also headed by a NASP. So NASP has done things for Uganda. Oh, wow. <laughs> so NASP is the National Astronomy and Space Science Program that's um, run here in South Africa. 
All right, so it sounds like the the community in Uganda is growing and that's really fantastic. And also congratulations to you on, on your achievements. So you finished your PhD in astronomy here in South Africa and now you are working for the South African Astronomical Observatory. Can you tell us a bit about what your role is now? So right now I am a postdoctoral fellow on the Southern African Large Telescope, specifically working under the operations team. And my role is actually software based, which is quite interesting that uh, my PhD was on extragalactic astronomy research, multi-wavelength extragalactic astronomy, where I looked at star formation in nearby galaxies. But I did quite a lot of software development during my master's and my PhD, which got me really interested in programming. All right. So right now, <laughs> right now, my role is basically writing software and doing very fun stuff like observing on salt. <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, cool. So you actually get to observe with salt. Well, actually, as part of my role, because my work actually, what I didn't elaborate on is to help in commissioning of the Fabry Perot interferometer on salt and to give support to observers and PIs for the schedule expected to have an understanding of how the telescope works and how the different instruments communicate with uh, with each other and with the telescope. So yes, I get to learn some things about observing and last week was actually my first solo run <laughs> on the telescope observing. <gasps> yes. Cool. You did it all by yourself. I was there with the operator and I also had a backup SA, a backup salt astronomer, those that are hired specifically for that role. Yeah, but it was pretty fun. And for my first night, actually, we observed a nearby, a near-Earth object, an asteroid going by. <gasps> oh, cool. It was super cool. Oh, we, yeah. we chatted last <laughs> last episode with Nick Erasmus, who works on the near-Earth asteroids, and he was telling us about some of these objects. So that's so cool. You actually got to see one with salt, which is a massive telescope. Yes, on my first night with salt. On your first <laughs> night. What an epic first night. That's amazing. It was. It was so amazing. Was it scary or did you feel really confident or how did it feel? Well, it was a mixture of feelings. First of all, watching the asteroid like just go across the screen, it was surreal. Wow. Of course, I was a bit anxious because it's Q, Q observing. Time is, is strict, uh, strictly limited. And many of these objects, like, for example, the near-Earth object that we, we observed, it was very limited in time, and it was a trigger observation. So you, you have to get it when you can get it, you know. <laughs> so there was a bit of anxiety. The nerves were there because it was my first night, you know. Yeah. And there's, you know, very important observation. Yeah. <laughs> All observations are important, but some observations <laughs> are very important. Because <laughs> they can't be repeated. <laughs> yes. So the excitement and the nerves and, you know, wanting to do it right because you want to give to the community the best you can give. Yeah, awesome. On my first night of observing by myself, I was at the Parks Radio Telescope in Australia and suddenly all the alarms went off. And I just freaked out because I thought I had broken the telescope. It turns out the power had just flicked off and on again and you just have to like reset the alarms. But oh my goodness, I freaked out. <laughs> I, I'm sure I still have bad dreams about that now. <laughs> oh, but anyway, well done. Yeah, what, an ex I, I, what an exciting... I know about that. I was yeah. <laughs> worried about breaking the telescope every minute of that night. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I had been tra- trained several times by the different uh, sort astronomers and they were very supportive. No, don't worry. You're not going to break anything. You know what you're doing. <laughs> good, good, good. <laughs> okay, so you got through that. And so now you have like a better understanding of how um, observing with salt works and how all the instruments talk together. Because, yes. of course, you've got the big mirror, yes. um, which collects all of the light. But then the light is focused and sent into these various different instruments, which collect the light and process the light in different ways. And I think you said, so you work with one of those instruments in particular, right? Okay, so to begin with, SALT is the largest optical telescope in the Southern Hemisphere, and it is made of 91 hexagonal segments, which are reflecting surfaces. It's quite a massive piece of engineering, and it has several instruments that work with it. Spectrographs, the famous Robert Stobie spectrograph, the HL spectrograph, the high-resolution spectrograph. But my specific instrument is actually a sub a subsystem of the Robert Stobie spectrograph in the sense that it is an observing mode. So on the Robert Stobie spectrograph, you can either propose to observe using the long-slit spectroscopy mode or the multi-object spectroscopy or you can also observe with the fabri Perot mode. Now, there's also other instruments that are coming on board and lots of cool stuff that's happening over there, cutting edge of technology. I am having the time of my life, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> so my specific role is with the fabri Perot observing mode, which gives us the capabilities for 3D spectroscopy, that is wide angle, wide angled 3D spectroscopy, so much amazing stuff and quite a bit of technical things there. So let's just break that down for the listeners and also for myself because I don't really do optical and so I'm not really that familiar with spectroscopes. Spectroscopes or spectrometers? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> what exactly is that What's thing it? called? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> spectrograph. Spectrograph. Sometimes people call them spe- spe- spectrometers. I'm like, no, a spectrometer is found in the lab. But oh. then another one will tell you, no, it's the exact same thing. But I'm like, no, the other one is a mass spectrometer. Oh, okay, God. okay. All right. So I'm correct. It's a yeah. spectrograph. Right. So there's all of these different spectrographs on salt. And what that means is that the light can be split into different wavelengths. And so that we can study the particular emission lines of different gases and chemicals and metals and things in space inside galaxies and stars and other things. But there are different types, different ways you can do spectrometry and different types of spectrographs. Is that correct? And one of the ones is Fabry Perot. Is that right? Yes. So to be clear, there are two currently, right now as we speak, there are two spectrographs. Okay. In the future, there will be a lot of news. You'll get it. But currently, there are two spectrographs. So there's the Robert Stovey spectrograph and the Eshel spectrograph, which is called the high-resolution spectrograph. Right. Okay. Now, the high-resolution spectrograph uh, uses fiber feed. Okay. Okay. But it's not IFU. Then the RSS mm-hmm. has different uh, modes of spectroscopy. The RSS is the... Robert Stobie spectrograph. Oh, is that what RSS stands for? Yes. Oh, I've Robert always wondered. Stobie. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we've got the RSS spectrograph. Yes. And on the RSS spectrograph, you can choose to observe using either the long slit spectroscopy mode or the multi-object spectroscopy mode. Different modes are being worked on to, to, to give RSS even more versatility. But there's also another mode, which is called the fabri Perot imaging mode. Okay, so we've got this... Pe- 
two spectrographs currently on SALT. One of them is called the RSS and it has different modes. And one of those modes is the Fabry Perot. And that's what you're going to be talking about, right? That's what you work on. Yes. All right, we got there. Yes. Cool. So tell us about the Fabry Perot. <laughs> what is it and what are you doing cool. with it? So I'll begin with what spectroscopy is generally. Usually when, when an image of astronomy is seen by the public, they admire how beautiful it looks mm, because definitely. it is beautiful. Yeah. It's, you know, let's be honest, it's quite beautiful. But from those images, we get to learn a lot about the distribution of material in the different objects we study. For example, the distribution of gas, the amount of gas in different parts of galaxies, from images, we get to study the distribution, for example, distribution of gas, uh, distribution of stars in galaxies. We, we see the spiral arms and there's a lot of information that we learn from the images because it's not just an image, it's actually a collection of data points. It's like a map, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the other mode of astronomy, if I may say, that the public doesn't usually... <clears throat> sorry, the other mode of astronomy that the public usually doesn't get to interact with is the spectroscopy. Mm. So spectroscopy is what we actually use to find out what are the chemical elements in these images that we are looking at. So we get to see the picture and then we want to know what is the composition of this picture. So spectroscopy helps us to see the why behind the what. Mm -hmm. And also from spectroscopy, we get to look at the motions of the gas and stars in the galaxies. We get to learn is how is the gas rotating, for example, around the, the, the center of the galaxy, or are there gas inflows or outflows out of the galaxy? How much of this element do we have? What are the edges of the different stars that we are looking at? A lot of this information, we get it from spectroscopy by studying the abundances in these, in these objects. Now, it so happens that imaging and spectroscopy are traditionally done separately. But there's a technique called 3D optical spectroscopy, which combines both the imaging and the spectroscopy. It, and it is called imaging spectroscopy. <laughs> oh, well, that makes sense. That's a good name for it, imaging spectroscopy. Okay, so usually... <laughs> you know. With spectroscopy, you don't get a picture, like a map on the sky. But what you're saying yes. is that with imaging spectroscopy, you do. Yes, you get both, the best of both. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so tell us more about that and how the Fabry Perot relates to that. Good. So the technique called imaging spectroscopy is also called 3D spectroscopy because you get to see both an image as well as the spectrum. Now, the Fabry Perot imaging mode is actually one of the ways that we achieve 3D spectroscopy. It is made of two glass plates. So the fabri perot imaging mode is one of the ways we can achieve 3D spectroscopy. It is made of two glass plates, which are made so that only a specific wavelength of light can be transmitted through those glass plates. So when the light is incident on one face of the glass, glass plate, it is reflected multiple times between the two plates, and then it is transmitted through the second plate and focused onto a detector. So we get to catch an image this way, but then we can scan across different wavelengths by changing either the separation of the plates or the air pressure between the plates. 
so that we can get several images at different wavelengths. And these images are very narrowband images. In the end, what you get is a data cube. And by data cube, I mean you get three dimensions. The XY, which would be your right ascension and declination, and then the Z, which is the spectral axis. Okay, so the spectral axis is like is like different wavelengths. Yes, different wavelengths. So you get several images at several wavelengths. But if you were to extract one pixel from this cube, you'd get a spectrum. Mm. So you, you literally have a spectrum at every point of your image. In other words, you can get extra information at every point in your image. This is really exciting. And I, I'm not sure if um, listeners listeners are aware of this because not even I was aware of this until recently, like in the last, what, decade or so that these this has been possible to get three-dimensional spectral images? Actually, 3D spectroscopy has been around for decades. Oh, really? Yeah. It started with Fabry-Perot interferometers, but the complexity made it not very appealing. Ah. And there has been 3D spectroscopy on La Palma, 3D spectroscopy in, um, I think it's SAO in Russia. There's been 3D spectroscopy. It's, it's been quite all over the place, actually. It's just that... Oh, I didn't realize it was that prolific. Yeah. In the last decade or so, fibers have now become more commonplace because the the data that comes out of the fiber is it can much more easily be reduced although it gives you a smaller field of view but it gives you an instantaneous you know cube and you're able to reduce it the way you would reduce the traditional long slit spectroscopy reducing is like processing the data after after you've collected it yes (laughs) processing the data i'm sorry lingo (laughs) (laughs) oh astronomy is full of it okay so you work with the fabry perot on salt which is these two plates and um, by moving the plates closer together or further apart or changing air pressure you get essentially a 3d image which has spectral information in there which gives you lots of great information about the chemicals in the galaxies and the movements of the gas and everything all right that's fantastic so what is your role related to this so my role in this is to help recommission the interferometer so observers and perhaps members of the public would have noticed that over a while there hasn't been work done using the Fabry-Perot imaging mode and that's because the plates had to be refurbished and a lot of improvements had to be done to them. So now we are in the process of getting new a new system with new etalons. When I say etalons I mean that combination of the parallel glass plates. So my role is to help to write new calibration software to help to deal with the complex data that comes out of it. So when you do spectroscopy, what you get, uh, for example, with long slit spectroscopy, you get spectrum of the continuum, which is usually like a bright line across <laughs> across your detector with superimposed dark bands or brighter bands showing you the absorption or emission lines to find out the different wavelengths at which each of those bands is you go through a certain process, which is called calibration. So for the Fabry-Perot, what you get is very different from traditional long slit spectroscopy. You get, like I said, an image, but that image is actually like a spherical (laughs) surface, cut out of a spherical surface where the wavelength varies with the radius. So the wavelength you have at each point in your image is different. 
and also the wavelength you have for each step of your spectral axis is different. Oh, this is getting complicated now. So, <laughs> yes. Now, what you get actually, just imagine you have, you know, the birthday cones that we wear on the heads for kids' birthdays? Oh, like the, the party hat. Yes, the party hats. <laughs> so imagine the party hats and you've stacked several of them on top of each other. So what you have is conical surfaces of constant wavelength. Okay, okay. And the software to unravel these and to help um, determine the wavelengths at different points in the images, that's what I'm working on, as well as software to help observers reduce data because generally observers and when you have to deal with a complex data set, you're not likely going to put in a proposal to, you know, get observations because like, why should I suffer with the data, you know? It's like a double-edged sword. You get the data, but then you have to deal with it and it's really hard to deal with it. Yes. So we want to give our observers ready-to-use data. So besides calibration, we are also writing data reduction software so that the, the proposers can feel encouraged that they are going to get a you know, ready to use <laughs> piece of data. So that's my work, writing the software. Oh, so you're going to make everyone's life much easier by producing, producing. <laughs> yeah. <Apparently>. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Apparently, well, that's what yeah. we hope. That's what we hope. <laughs> yeah, so that's what, that's what I do. And also offering PI support and there's a lot in my job description, but that's the core part. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. You must be so busy. <laughs> wow. This is, this is incredible. Uh, it's, I think it's more fun than busy. I oh, would good. Say. So you really enjoy your job. If, if you enjoy what you're doing, then yeah. yes. <laughs> oh, that makes it easier. Wonderful. Sounds like you have to do a lot of programming. How do you feel about that? Do you, in, you enjoy programming? How did you learn to do this? Oh, yes, I do enjoy programming. So I learned to do programming during NASP, actually. That's one of the first things that they taught us when we came to NASP. You know, it was like a crash course. But, you know, when something is interesting, you quickly pick interest. And like, I would like to learn more about this. So I learned a bit more during my master's. It so happens that the projects I did for my master's and my PhD were quite code intensive, you know. And I'm so glad to actually have had supervisors that were coders and it was a big deal to them and they made sure they taught me and oh that's really good <laughs> yeah one of the pain points was uh, them insisting you have to write every software that Whoa. you need to to use during this this phd and they're like you are not going to use you know anything that you have not written if you use standard software first <gasps> find out what is the code Whoa, behind it <laughs> that's amazing but that must have like done you so well for the future yeah, it, it helped me to realize how much fun it is to learn something new all the time. And for me, what I found very interesting when I was introduced to coding was you can actually tell a computer what you want it to do and it will do yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. You know, that I remember the very first week when we were taught programming by, by the NASP program, that was my reaction. And I was so loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I actually found that I, I was so scared of programming. I tried to avoid it for as long as possible, which was a big mistake because it's the most useful skill and actually really fun. It is. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, so I get to do quite uh, a lot of it. And the fact that I'm learning something new all the time, that's the cool thing about programming is that you don't have to have figured it out before you start. 
you find a challenge and then the challenge challenges you yeah. to find a solution. And you like you like basically learn another language just to solve the solution. Yes. So I'm interested. I yeah, it's quite interesting. I only know how to program with Python. Do you know do you use that a lot or do you use different languages? The salt standard pipeline is written in Python. So even now the programs that I'm writing they are in Python. And it's the language that I've mostly used most of the time. But along the way, I've always found myself having to learn something about different languages to get past a certain yeah. problem, you know. <laughs> so I found <laughs> at different times, I found myself coding in a language that I would probably never code in again. But I had to Fantastic. <laughs> oh, so skilled. I'm so impressed. <laughs> So you mentioned that the Fabry Perot mode has been not working for quite a long time. And now, thanks to the work of, of you and others, it's being recommissioned. When when do you think that will happen? Yes, actually, uh, there's good news coming coming up soon. And we hope that before the end of this year, we will be in the middle of recommissioning. Um, as I mentioned, the plates were being re refurbished and getting new housings and improvements, you know, new and improved. Yeah, <laughs> upgraded. Um, so <laughs> we hope to very soon receive them back from the contracted company and start the measurements, laboratory measurements, sky measurements, and science commissioning. Very cool. Exciting yeah, so times ahead. Hopefully very soon, yes. Exciting nice. times ahead. <laughs> Fantastic. And I think I'll, I'll have to let you get back to all of your very important, very busy work now. But um, <laughs> do you have any final messages for listeners before we go? Yes, I do have something to say to the listeners. And I think my heart mostly goes out to students, especially those that are starting out, maybe university or high school. One thing that I found uh, that used to bother me a bit when I was in school, both high school and and university and I think it's it's my dad that helped me to see it because he is a scientist himself but there's no need to fear science it's actually not a difficult inaccessible thing science is actually fun but if you fear it before you approach it then it will feel difficult to you that's something I always like to tell students and people generally science is fun and it's yours for the taking you know I don't know how to emphasize it anymore, but I, I like to say that quite a lot to the students. If you can just engage with it, you know, like there's a famous celebrity, I don't know her name, but she likes to say that clarity comes with engagement. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, well, maybe also just to put Luganda, my language, on the Cosmic Savannah podcast. Yes, please do. <laughs> Although... Although I'm a mixture of so many things in Uganda, but I'll just say one thing. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for having me here. Yay! It was an absolute pleasure uh, to have you here. And um, thank you so much for your time, Liz. Thank you so much. It was so amazing speaking with you. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks again. Bye. Bye. Thank you.
thanks for the interview. It was really great to hear. And I was actually in Sutherland last week when Liz had her first observing run. We were there, as I mentioned earlier, with the Parliamentary Portfolio Committee. So a bunch of members of, of the South African Parliament who were visiting the site and, you know, seeing what we're up to. And Liz was one of two ladies, the, the astronomer and the operator, uh, running the Salt Telescope that night. So two African ladies, young, trained in, in South Africa and operating the largest telescope in the Southern Hemisphere. So it was very cool. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> That is epic. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. And of course, it's an honour to and a pleasure to have Liz on this episode to help us celebrate the Women and Girls in Astronomy project. And But just to state clearly that we definitely don't need any excuse to have fantastic women on this podcast, but it is awesome that we could have Liz. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's more and more. I think that the you know, we've probably talked about it before, but the, the observatory 20 years ago, I think, had one one woman astronomer out of the 20 and and now i think we're on 12 or something so uh, we're greater than 50 percent female astronomers at the observatory here and yeah. it, i mean it's it's wonderful it's wonderful you know the the change that's happened in just 20 years yeah and we've got a high fraction of of women uh lecturers now at, at uct at the department of astronomy which is great to which you're contributing obviously yeah well yes <laughs> now i am <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, just great to hear uh, Liz getting involved with SALT. I mean, you know, even even if it's not necessarily her job, just the passion to want to get involved and sort of understand what's going on and experience it. It's a, it's an incredible thing to see SALT and be able to spin around this four-story telescope and get some awesome observations. And following up near-Earth asteroids too, which is really cool. <laughs> yeah, that must have been so awesome. And not easy, I'm sure, moving that telescope, you know, to track an object, which is generally moving across the sky quite quickly. Yeah, it's a hefty thing. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> still haven't seen uh, it, but one day, well, I mean, one you know, day. Now you're a lecturer at UCT, but you're still remotely operating from Australia. But when, you, when you're back, yeah. Yes, yes, still in Australia, but, you know, pending visas, I will make my way back to South Africa, fingers crossed. <laughs> and you've got, to, you've got to get your students to salt too, so. Yeah, I guess I do. That'll be fun. Field trip. You'll be the best lecturer ever. Well, the students actually do usually go on a field trip to Sutherland, not since COVID hit, but yeah, hopefully we get to go back there again soon. So I think that's it for today, and thanks very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. As always, you can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where we'll have the transcript, links, pictures, and other stuff related to today's episode. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. And you can also find us on YouTube, where audio-only episodes are uploaded with closed captions, which are great because they can be auto-translated into many different languages, including Afrikaans, Isikosa, and Zulu. Special thanks today to Dr. Elizabeth Naluminza for speaking with us. Thanks to our social media manager, Sumari Hatting, and our audio editor, Jacob Fahn. Also to Mark Allnut for music production, Michal Wercek for photography, Carl Jones for astrophotography, and Susie Karras for graphic design. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation, the South African Agency for Science and Technology Advancement, the South African Astronomical Observatory, and the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department. 
You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review us or recommend us to a friend. And we'll speak to you next time on The Cosmic Savannah. Yeah, the International Astronomical Union is running a Women in Astronomy Month. Is it a month? Um, I think it's a couple. It's like a couple of weeks. It's between the. Oh, are we recording or? Are you yeah, we're recording. Me? Do it. Do it. Oh. We're <laughs> oh Conversational. <laughs> Conversational. <laughs>